Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, beginning our reading at verse 8. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed, and was delivered of a child when she was past age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude, and as the sand which is by the shore innumerable. All these died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this is the word of the Lord. During the past three weeks, we have been blessed by sermons on the subject of gratitude. I have listened to each one of them at home and I have been blessed and challenged. And today, as we come to the Sunday before Thanksgiving, I would like us to focus on the history of our American Thanksgiving. And the reason that I think that that is important is that that story is not known by many in the younger generation. And it's important for us to remember the origin of what we call Thanksgiving Day. The story of our American Thanksgiving begins in England around the year 1600. Henry VIII had broken away from the church on the continent and had established what really seemed to amount to his church. And although some fine changes had been made, 
There were many, many believers in England who felt we have not gone far enough into the Reformation movement. We need to move further into the truth of the gospel and into a close, holy walk with God. These people were called the Puritans because they wanted to purify the church in England. They tried to purify it, but they received very little encouragement. And so many of them began to establish their own congregations and to worship God in their way as they believed God wanted them to worship. So because they had left the organized church, they were often referred to as the separatists. And because they emphasized the local congregation ruling itself and responsible to God directly, they were called Congregationalists after that practice. There were many of these fellowships throughout England, but two especially. In Gainsborough, under John Smith, and in Scrooby, under William Brewster and John Robinson. When Queen Elizabeth came to the throne, she really believed sincerely that if England was to be one country, it needed to have one religion. And so she had passed the Acts of Uniformity, saying that unless you belong to that church, you would receive civil fines and civil punishment. Later, when King James came to the throne, King James did one wonderful thing. He financed and encouraged the translation of the scriptures into the English language. For that, we will always be thankful to him. But on the other hand, he too believed that there had to be only one religion in England, and of these Puritans of these pilgrims, he said, I will make them conform or I will harry them out of the land. And that's exactly what he did. For these people were persecuted, arrested, punished, fined, and a few of them were put to death. And so Many of these people said, we cannot remain in England. We've got to go somewhere where we can worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience as guided by the scriptures. And so in 1607, many of them moved from England to Amsterdam in Holland. At that time, Holland was one of the very few countries in the world that allowed religious freedom. They gathered and met and worshipped in Amsterdam for approximately one year. And then they moved to the little town of Leiden. And John Robinson was their pastor. 
A few years ago when I was a guest lecturer in Tyndale Seminary just outside of Amsterdam, Marion and I took a trip down to Leiden and found there the tomb of John Robinson and saw where those early pilgrims had lived for approximately 11 years. But they were very difficult years. The pilgrims were very poor. They were living in a different culture than they were used to. The people who lived there spoke a different language, and they did not make it easy for the pilgrims. Now, one thing that they did while they were at Leiden was to really worship God. History tells us that a typical Lord's Day for those people would be worship from 8 a.m. until noon, then a little break for lunch, and then coming back to worship from 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock in the evening. I think that's why I like the pilgrims so much. I would love that. Uh, I'm not sure you would, but some of us would really love that. The pilgrims had a reputation for honesty there in Holland. And though they were very poor, and though they were loaned money with high interest rates, they paid off every penny that they owed. And they lived together in harmony and love and mutual support. But the one thing they could not do in Holland was to evangelize other people. And burning within their hearts was a desire to share Jesus with all the people around them. And so finally, driven by poverty, discouragement, and these limitations, they said, we cannot stay in Holland. We've got to go somewhere in the New World. And so they went back to England, or at least some of them did, and gained permission to settle in what they called the northern parts of Virginia. And Pastor Robinson preached a sermon on that occasion, taken from 1 Samuel 23, verses 3 and 4. And this was his text. And David's men said unto him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we come to Kelia against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord yet again. And the Lord answered him and said, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into thine hand. And so with this encouragement, it was decided that the younger people, the stronger people, and the healthy people, and volunteers would go to the new world. The others would remain in Leiden, being led by John Robinson. And so, finally, they boarded the speedwell to take them back to England. And there at the dock, 
John Robinson preached another sermon to them based on Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our God, to seek of him a right way for us, for our little ones, and for all our substance. For I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way, because we had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him. But his power and his wrath is against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and besought God for this, and he was entreated of us. And based upon that text, Pastor Robinson entreated those who were going to the new world to follow him no further than he followed Christ. He urged them to find new truth in the scriptures. He made this famous statement, the Lutherans have gone no further than Luther and the Calvinists have gone no further than Calvin. But we must be open to new truth that comes from the Scriptures. He exhorted them on this occasion to concentrate on union and not division, to put their faith in God and not in any human being, including the pastor. And he commended this little group to God with many Tears. About a hundred went on that trip from Leiden and Amsterdam back to England, and then they were joined there by John Alden and Miles Standish. They had trouble with the ship named Speedwell. It did not speed well at all, and they had to turn back and, and abandon that ship. And so all of them got on that small little ship called the Mayflower. They set sail on September 6, 1620, 102 passengers, and they were 63 days on the Atlantic Ocean, facing storms and wind and all kinds of serious problems. The captain, who was not one of the pilgrims, made life unbearable for the pilgrims, teasing them, saying all kinds of vile things to them and about them. One of the crew, named William Buton, just hated these pilgrims and did everything in his power to make that trip across the Atlantic unhappy. But it's interesting that none of the pilgrims died on the trip, but William Buton did die. And the pilgrims took that as God's judgment upon what they were doing. The ship was blown off of course by a storm, 
And so instead of landing at the base of the Hudson River, they landed at Cape Cod at what is today Provincetown. They sent a landing group onto Cape Cod. They looked around and concluded that this is no place that we want to live. Now, I'm not sure the Chamber of Commerce of Cape Cod appreciates that, but that was the conclusion of the pilgrims. And so they got back on the Mayflower and sailed across that small bay, landing at what today is called Plymouth. But before they got off the ship, they gathered together in the captain's quarters and signed what is known now as the Mayflower Compact, a compact that was to have a tremendous influence on the future history of our country. Let me read for you what it said. In the name of God, amen. We whose names are underwritten, the loyal subjects of our dread sovereign Lord King James, by ye grace of God of Great Britain, Frank and Ireland, King, Defender of ye faith, etc., having undertaken for the glory of God and the advancement of ye Christian faith and honor in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these presents solemnly and mutually in ye presence of God and one of another, covenant and combine ourselves together into a civil body politic for our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of ye ends aforesaid, and by virtue hereof to enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitution, and offices from time to time, as shall be thought most meet and convenient for ye general good of ye colony, unto which we promise all due submission and obedience. And 41 adults signed that great compact. They sent landing parties into what is today known as Plymouth, Massachusetts. And finally, on December 21st, 1620, they all went ashore. And that became a full day of worship and thanksgiving as they thanked God for his protection in crossing the Atlantic as they praised God that now they could have religious freedom and be free from persecution. It was a great day. But the winter of 1620 and 1621 was long and hard. Just about half of the pilgrims died during that winter. Governor Bradford wrote, 
It pleased God to visit us with death daily and with so general a disease that the living were scarce able to bury the dead. You would have thought that they would give up at this point. Half of their number dead. But when the Mayflower returned to England in March of 1621, not one of the pilgrims would go. And the reason was they valued freedom more than physical security. A lesson that I wish we could learn in our day. But new hope came in the spring of 1621. As the earth began to warm, spring began to come, they faced new opportunities. During March of 1621, two Indians came to visit them, Samoset and Squanto. And this is a very interesting story. For Squanto, when he was a boy of 12, had been taken by some English traders. The traders said, come on board our ship and we'll do some trading. But they took them prisoner and took them to Spain where they sold them into slavery. So Squanto, as a boy of 12, was sold into slavery in Malaga, Spain. He was bought by a priest, and lived for several years in a monastery. There they taught him to love God and to understand something of God's love. And when I was in Malaga a few years ago, that monastery was pointed out to me as the place that Squanto had been. Well, after a few years in Spain, he gained his freedom and went to England, hoping to get back to America once again. But he was delayed there, and during that time, he was taken in and loved and helped by many of the British people. He learned the English language and was able to speak English Fluently, And when he came to visit with the pilgrims in March of 1621, they were amazed because he said, Welcome, Englishmen. And he spoke perfect English. But beyond that, Squanto taught them how to hunt, how to fish, and how to garden. And many historians believe that Squanto literally saved their lives teaching them how they could exist in the new world. They had a wonderful harvest that year, and the people were so thankful to God. And Governor Bradford decreed October 24, 1621, as a day of thanksgiving. They worked for several days preparing for it, the women were cooking food and preparing it. The men were out hunting and came back with wild turkeys and venison. 
And then on the day of Thanksgiving, Chief Massasoit and 90 Wampanoag Indians came to celebrate with them. Governor Bradford wrote, The Lord sent them such seasonable showers that through his blessing there was a fruitful and liberal harvest for which mercy they set apart a day of thanksgiving. And so that is the history of the beginning of our American thanksgiving. It ended up being three days of feasting, celebrating, and thanking God for his blessings. As we come to Thanksgiving this week, it's my prayer that we who know the Lord would not let this become just a secular holiday, but that we might realize that it is a day of offering thanksgiving to our God. I have often threatened people, don't you ever call it Turkey Day in my presence. It's Thanksgiving Day. It's a day of giving thanks to our Lord. Well, others began to come from Leiden, from Amsterdam, and from England. And God continued to bless that little band of pilgrims at Plymouth. Later on, they merged with the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and that was establishing a pattern of freedom and constitutional living that gave us the blessings of our country. I respect and honor those pilgrims. They were great men and women of faith. And as I close, let me just point out some of the qualities of the pilgrims with the prayer that we might want to model that in our own lives. First of all, they had a depth of conviction. Romans 8.31 says, If God be for us, who can be against us. And in spite of all of the threats and punishments that came from the king of England, they feared the Lord and not any earthly power. We live in a day that lacks that kind of conviction. And we need to regain it and model it for our nation. Secondly, they modeled spiritual unity and family feeling. In Ephesians 4, 3, the Apostle Paul wrote, Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The pilgrims like to describe themselves as part of the household of faith and the family of God. They loved one another. And during that awful winter of 1620 and 1621, six or seven men cared for all the rest of the pilgrims who were extremely sick. Church historians say that probably at no time since the early church 
was such love and mutual care exhibited. You know, last week I was invited to a birthday party of one of BlackRock's senior citizens. And what a time it was as we talked together and the, and the conversation kept coming back to, oh, we love BlackRock Church. It means so much to us. And I thought to myself as, as I was there in that celebration, that ought to be everyone's spirit. We love this church and we thank God for it. A third quality was a solid base of doctrine. In 1 Timothy 4.13, the Apostle Paul wrote, Give attendance to doctrine. William Bradford, at the age of 12, was able to hold deep theological discussions with his elders. John Robinson's sermons, which went on sometimes for several hours, would scarcely be understood by people of the 21st century. They knew their doctrine, and they lived by it. And it made them great. A fourth quality, they had a passion to live a holy life. First Peter 2.11 says, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul. You know, I hear a lot of people in America laugh at the Puritans and the pilgrims. I hear them boasting, we've shed that Puritan ethic. Yes, we have. And we have reaped a bitter harvest because we have. Oh, how we need to return to a passion to live a holy life. And then, fifthly, their fifth quality was a high vision of a nation under God. Psalm 33, verse 12, Blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. It was the deep, earnest desire of these early pilgrims to establish a holy commonwealth, a new Israel, a city set on a hill. And they bound themselves to live agreeable to God's word. Their laws, and later on the Constitution of the United States, reflected the standards of Scripture. But today, we are losing that. And the Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I will not say that the pilgrim is dead, for he lives on in the ideals that rebuke our soft, complacent age. The skeptics cannot dismiss him, and we cannot forget him. His bones are long since dust, 
beneath the wind-fretted grass of many a neglected New England burying ground. Yet in Salem, Springfield, and Harvard Yard, his bronze eyes stare unseeingly out over the traffic that swirls by without a glance or thought. The pilgrim is not dead. His spirit still haunts the mind of modern man. His strong image confronts a sensual and standardless day and mars its pleasure-seeking peace. His harsh, self-imposed, and self-accepted discipline, his big dream and unaltering faith in God, are perpetual reproaches to our era of unfaith, lax living, and easy ethics. Today, when men and women of sensitivity pause to put their finger to the pulse of America, they can still feel the beat and throb of the heart of the pilgrim. Please, God, may that heart beat in us.